Good morning, Story Church. It's so good to be with you on July 4th weekend. Shout out to all of our friends who are joining us online at their lake house. I'm really jealous, and I can probably still make it out there by Tuesday if you invite me on Monday. So just remember me and your prayers, and if you have some joy in your heart, you can invite me over. Uh, but for real, I'm really glad to be with y'all on uh, this weekend. A lot of y'all showed up. That's awesome. Um, I've been out of the country for almost half of the month of June in between my own vacation and this mission trip. So it is really good to be back in the States, and I'm really glad to be here for the 4th of July because I love traveling internationally, but there's some things I always miss about the United States. I mean, I miss Chick-fil-A. I miss air conditioning. I miss being able to flush my toilet paper. So it's good to be in a country where I can do all those things uh, once again. And for real, like I, I love our country. I love America. I'm thankful for the freedom we have here. So I hope you all have a really great week just celebrating uh, this great country we live in. If we haven't met yet, my name is uh, Dylan Braddock, and I serve here at The Story as our student coordinator. And as you can see, we've already had a pretty awesome summer. The Dominican Republic was kind of like the kickoff trip of the whole year, but it hasn't stopped there. About two weeks ago, we had our vacation Bible school here at the Story Church that our next-gen team and Joanne put on, and that was a blast. My official role for the week was the hype pastor. Uh, so basically, I just danced and sang songs with kids and taught them about Jesus, which is like the best job ever, so I can't complain. And uh, the summer doesn't stop in June. As we move into July, we have a ton of stuff coming up. We have our middle school lake retreat in about two weeks. So we go to Lake Livingston for three days in the sun. Uh, our theme this year is called Overflow, and we're talking about the things that are being poured into us and what we're pouring out upon others, which I think will be a really cool topic. And then a few weeks after that, to end July, we have our high school apologetics camp. And I cannot recommend our high school apologetics camp enough for our high school age students. Um, we are literally bringing in people from across the country, like people from Georgia, people from uh, England are like zooming in. So we are bringing in guest speakers from all over the world to talk about the most pressing questions of faith that our students are asking. So if you have any questions about the Lake Retreat or Apologetics Camp, you can find out more information online, or you can just find me after the service. So as you saw in the video, uh, this summer, I had the absolute honor and privilege of leading my third trip to the Dominican Republic with Go Ministries. And um, if this is your first time at the story, and you've never heard of Go Ministries, let me briefly introduce you to them. Go Ministries is a disciple-making movement. That is their goal. That is what they do. They make disciples in the Dominican Republic. And I've had the privilege of leading men's trips, uh, family trips, and student trips there. And people always ask me, like, which trip is the best? Who do you like more, the families, the students, or the men? And I can't tell you the answer to that question. It's like asking a parent which kid they love the most, right? I, I can't tell you. And every trip is different and unique in its own way. Like on the men's trips, we'll end up smoking cigars on the beach every night. And on the youth trips, I'll end up being in a bunk room with a bunch of middle school boys eating Cheetos, talking about girls. Like the trips are vastly different, but they're both good in their own way. And the cord that kind of ties all these trips together is this heart for discipleship. We go to the DR not to disciple our brothers and sisters in Christ, but really to learn what it means to be a disciple. That's why we go to learn. 
And you could say that Go Ministries is fixated on this idea of discipleship. They have three primary arms of their ministry. One is sports ministry. Um, the other is a medical clinic ministry. And the third and final one is a church planning ministry. And all three of these arms have the same goal of making disciples through their various fields. So Go Sports is probably the biggest, or at least it used to be the biggest mission. And Go Sports is this world-class sports complex in the Dominican Republic where they take um, teens and train them in basketball, uh, uh, baseball, and help make them elite athletes. But when I was talking to the director of Go Sports a couple weeks ago, he told me that their number one priority is not making professional athletes. Their number one priority is to make disciples. And they don't care if they're making MLB players, if they're not first making disciples. And this is true for all their areas of ministries. And one thing they've done to illustrate that point this year is they have installed this massive bell tower on top of the LDC complex that you saw a second ago. And they have this massive bell that the whole, uh, all the fields can see. And they don't ring this bell when a player hits a home run. They don't ring this bell when a player gets signed. They don't ring this bell when someone makes the MLB. They ring this bell when a child decides to be baptized. That is when they ring the bell. And as soon as they ring that bell, every single player and coach stops what they're doing. They clap, they throw up their hats, and they have a party to celebrate that student's decision to follow Jesus. In life, we always replicate what we celebrate. And by celebrating discipleship, by celebrating baptisms, Go is creating a culture of disciple-making. And this, in a nutshell, is why we go to the DR, so we can learn what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. Because when I talk to my friends who are pastors, and when I talk to other pastors around the city and the state, when we get together, we acknowledge that we as churches have kind of dropped the ball on discipleship. We've done a really good job of making awesome kids ministries, fun youth ministries, great worship experiences, but how often are we putting our primary focus on discipling people in the way of Jesus? Writer and pastor Dallas Willard had this to say about the church today. He said, the greatest issue facing the church with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Will they become students, apprentices, or practitioners of Jesus Christ? So what Willard is saying there, he says, the biggest problem in the church today is we have a whole lot of believers, but we have very few disciples. A lot of believers, a few disciples. And when the Story Church started eight years ago, we started with this mission of inspiring people to follow Jesus. And we still stick to that mission today. And some people think that this mission is only focused on evangelism. But I fully believe that if we are inspiring non-religious people to follow Jesus, that means we're not only focused on them making a one-time faith decision, but we are invested in discipling them into fully devoted followers of Jesus. That is part of the inspiration process. It doesn't stop at them being baptized. It continues for the rest of their life. And this morning, I think I've already said the word discipleship like 12 times. So I want to pause here and tell you what I hope to do this morning. My goal for us is to define what real discipleship is, 
to talk about how we can go out and make disciples. And third and finally, to paint a picture for us of what disciple-making movements look like. Because it is my belief that if the church is going to flourish in 2023 and beyond, then we have to be more serious about making disciples who make disciples. So let's start with the definition this morning. Here is how I personally would define a disciple. I looked it up on the internet and there's like 12 million different definitions, but here is the uh, Dylan Braddock definition of a disciple. Someone who is growing in knowledge of and likeness to Jesus through surrendering their entire lives to him. So it's someone who is learning, who is imitating, and who is submitting their lives to Jesus. And from the beginning this morning, I want to establish that being a disciple of Jesus is a high bar. It's not a low bar. Being a believer is a low bar. If you accept Jesus in your heart, you're saved. But being a disciple asks a little bit more of you. And the confusing thing for many people today is we will lump believers and disciples into the same boat, but I don't think that is the case. My belief is that every disciple of Jesus is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. Every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. This might be an uncomfortable truth for some of you, but in my opinion, it's the reality. And this is the problem that Dallas Willard was talking about in that quote we just read, because there are believers in our churches who are not trying to get to know Jesus better. They're not trying to be more like him. And for one reason or another, they are refusing to submit their lives wholly and completely to him. Now, this doesn't mean they're not saved. I'm not here questioning anyone's salvation. I'm not saying you're saved, you're saved, you're not saved. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that some of us are not living up to God's potential for us. We have made that first critical step to be a believer, but we have not taken that next step of discipleship. And I think a good scriptural example of the distinction between a believer and a disciple might be the thief on the cross. You're probably familiar with the story, Jesus is being crucified and there's a man being crucified next to him. And this man basically says like, Jesus, like you are the Lord, you are God. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This thief on the cross was a believer. He was saved by faith through belief in Jesus, but I'm not sure if I would call this thief on the cross a disciple. Because I think discipleship takes time. Discipleship takes intimacy with Christ, and that doesn't happen in an instant. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus explains to us that there's a cost that comes with discipleship. And here's where he gets into this high bar we talked about. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you open them up with me to Luke chapter uh, 14. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, they'll be on the screen, but you can also find it in the pew or in the seat back in front of you. So we're picking up in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, guess even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? 
For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and it wasn't able to finish. Let's jump down to 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. So three times in this passage, Jesus says, such a person cannot be my disciple. And anytime you see repetition in scripture, that's a big sign to pause and read and really digest what Jesus is talking about. And when I read this passage, I see Jesus setting a high bar for what it means to be a disciple. There were many rabbis and religious leaders in Jesus's time, and Jesus wasn't the only one who had disciples. Basically, every other teacher had disciples, but Jesus's disciples were different. And this is true today as well. I would argue that every single person in this room is a disciple of someone or something. Maybe it's Jesus, maybe it's not Jesus. Uh, We all follow different business gurus and practice their financial advice. That means you are a disciple of them. I know many of you follow bloggers and you buy the products that they show and recommend. That would make you a disciple of this blogger. Or maybe there's a fitness instructor and you emulate their workouts. Or maybe there's a political commentator and you adopt their worldview and their opinions. This is what it looks like to be a disciple in our modern day. But what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What is the cost that comes with it? Well, first, Jesus says we have to hate our father, our mother, our spouse, our kids, and even ourselves. Like, what, what's going on here? This is, this is pretty intense. Like, why didn't Jesus start with something chill? Like, to be a follower of me, you have to listen to Christian radio and watch The Chosen. Like, why did he start here on, like, the far end of the spectrum? And isn't hate like a bad word? Like, don't we tell our kids not to hate people? And didn't Moses say to honor your father and mother? So what is Jesus talking about when he says to hate our spouse and our kids and our family? Well, this is a case when this week I was studying this passage, I looked at the original Greek and the word here that is translated to hate is missio. And when it's used other times in the Bible, this word is not a word of anger or hostility, It's a word that talks about supremacy and order. So when we compare our obligations and our responsibility to Jesus, to our other worldly relationships, we should hate them when we compare them to Jesus. Not because we don't like them or mad at them or have ill will to them, towards them, but because we love Jesus so much that he gets our ultimate supremacy. He is the ultimate boss in our life and everyone else comes second. That's what Jesus is asking for from his disciples. He wants us to be all in on him. And when family and Jesus conflict, we go with Jesus. And this was something that really early believers in Christ had to deal with. When they left the synagogues, when they became Christians, they lost their families, they lost their communities because of their allegiance to Christ. So secondly, Jesus doesn't get any nicer. He actually gets more difficult. And he says that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have to become like me and be willing to suffer like me. So first, we have to hate our family. And secondly, we have to suffer. Pretty high bar, right? And there's, once again, no way to soften this command. Jesus says that if we want to follow him, that we should expect some pain, 
some suffering, and some rejection. Because if being a disciple is imitating Christ, and Christ experienced these things, then we should expect to experience them as well. And third and finally, Jesus wants his disciples to count the cost and be ready to surrender it all to Jesus. He may or may not ask you to give it to him, but the important thing is that you're ready when he asks. Because Jesus doesn't want us just to blindly follow him. He doesn't want carefree followers who wear WWJD bracelets and say, I'm ready to follow you, Jesus, wherever you tell me to go. And then when push comes to shove, they give up or they walk away. That's not the type of disciples that Jesus is looking for. He wants reflective disciples, those who are grizzled veterans, those who have counted the cost, who know the stakes, but still say they are all in. That's what it means to count the cost and follow. It is all about surrender and submission. And when I think of surrender, and when I think of our time in the Dominican Republic, I think of a guy named Tim. Tim is a force for the kingdom of God. But as you can see in this picture, he's the guy on the left. If you saw this guy in HEB, you would have no idea who he is or what he's doing for the kingdom. I mean, he's unassuming. He's short, kind of like me. He has these really long sideburns. He looks like a 90s like children's pastor. He's a goofy guy. You would never expect the things he has done for the kingdom of God. But this guy is like a literal firecracker. I've had two opportunities to have dinner with him. And both times we just asked him questions. And he told incredible stories about what he's doing in the Dominican Republic. When the earthquake hit Haiti about 13 years ago, Tim was so moved and so called that he commandeered a boat. He couldn't get to um, the, uh, Haiti through the roads. So he literally rode around the whole island in a boat to go save teams from collapsing buildings in Haiti. Other times, Tim has been to villages where the gospel has never been preached and he has seen demon possessions and exorcisms in the name of Jesus. Tim has seen entire neighborhoods, entire communities being transformed by the gospel. And when I talked to Tim, I'll be honest, when I left the conversation, I was kind of jealous. I was like, how come Tim has experienced all of these incredible kingdom stories and I've only witnessed like a little bit? Like, what's wrong with me? Why haven't I experienced these things? What is the secret sauce? What is Tim doing that I am not doing? And as I've thought about Tim, I've realized there's no secret sauce to what he's doing. It's actually really, really simple. Tim is living a life of complete surrender. That's all he's doing. And if you live a life of complete surrender, if you pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you never know exactly where he's gonna lead, but you do know that he will use you as his hands and feet to make a kingdom impact wherever he needs you. And I don't know about you guys, but that's the life I want to live. I don't want to live a boring, ordinary life when I do my nine to five. I want to live a life where I am a force for the kingdom of God. I want to live a life of a disciple where I am wrecked for the ordinary and all I seek is the extraordinary. That is what Tim is doing. And all we need to do to get there is to simply surrender our lives to Jesus. It sounds easy, but it's a lot harder than we think. Pastor Mark Batterson 
probably has one of my favorite quotes about discipleship, and I think it applies to Tim. Batterson says, if you are bored, one thing is for sure, you are not following in the footsteps of Christ. And this is so true of our friend, Tim. Tim is crazy, like in a good way, but this dude is crazy and nothing he does in his life is boring because he has picked up his cross and he's following Jesus wherever he leads. And I've talked to many students at our church and frankly, many older men at our church who say they're tired of playing church games. They say every Sunday is the same thing. I get nothing out of it. And my response to them is, have you tried being a disciple? Because I promise if you are following Jesus's footsteps daily, and if you are seeking to be a disciple, it is anything but boring. It's a challenge. It'll press you, but it is good. So now that we have started to define what the term disciple means, how do we make disciples? Like how do these people pop up? In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. The truth is, disciples make disciples. They just regenerate. They make more. Being a disciple isn't passive, it is active. And part of being a disciple is making disciples. And a good litmus test to ask yourself, if you're wondering, am I a disciple or not? Ask yourself, who am I pouring into? And who is pouring into me? Who am I pouring into and who is pouring into me? Because to be a disciple, you have to do both of those things. Someone has to be discipling you and you have to be discipling someone else. Both sides of the equation are needed. No one ever gets to the point in their life when they no longer need to be discipled. No one like passes Christian maturity and says, woohoo, I'm done. Like no one ever gets to that point. When I graduated from seminary and got my master's of divinity, it wasn't like I was done learning about God. If anything, all that piece of paper told me is I haven't learned anything and I have a lot more to learn. I mean, I love seminary. I love pursuing my MDiv, but that wasn't the end of the story. If anything, that was the beginning of a journey of lifelong discipleship. And I don't know about you guys, but it's been hard to turn away from all these church failure like documentaries and podcasts that have been coming out. Like I enjoy watching them, but I don't know why because it's kind of sick and it's kind of sad. It's like watching a car crash, but I can't get enough of them because it's so interesting to see how these massive churches like disappear overnight. And through all the documentaries I've watched and podcasts I've listened to, the, the, the reason I've determined that these churches have fallen apart is because these pastors have stopped being discipled. They've come to the point in their lives when no one's pouring into them, no one's holding them accountable, and they have no checks and balances. So they just do what they want. And that is an unhealthy situation to be in. All of us, no matter who we are or what we've done, need to be discipled because the first part of making disciples is being discipled. So now that you are being poured into, who are you seeking out? 
Because making disciples is an assignment that we are all given. Not we as in pastors, but we as a community. We are called to go out and make disciples of all nations. This was Jesus' plan from the very start. We are being equipped to go out and equip someone else. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus only talks to the crowds or to the masses 17 times, but he talks to his disciples and teaches his disciples 46 times. Jesus's priority were the dudes around him. Jesus's priority were the 12 guys that he chose to pour into for two to three years straight. He walked with these guys. He talked with these guys. He ate with these guys. And very slowly but surely, they started to pick up what he was putting down because Jesus's mission was to always make disciples who would make disciples. And when Jesus eventually died, rose again, and then ascended into heaven, his plan was put into action because the Christian faith started with 11 men in Jerusalem and now has over 2.2 billion followers to this day. How did that happen? Through one-on-one intentional discipleship. Jesus was not worried as much about the masses and about the reach and about the uh, quantity. Jesus was worried about the quality of the guys he was pouring into because he knew they would be the ones who would pour in to the next generation. On my very first trip to Go Ministries a couple of years ago, I heard that Go had the mission of planting 1,000 churches in 10 years. Now, in case y'all didn't know, churching, uh, planting churches is very, very hard. I mean, the story's been around for, what, eight years? And we've planted uh, one church, and Go has the goal of planting 1,000 churches in 10 years. So how, how is this possible? How can they make this happen? Well, it's by focusing on discipleship. A pastor there told me that if you plant a church, there's no promise you'll get disciples. But if you make disciples, you will always get a church. So instead of starting with the building, instead of starting with the pastor, they start with making disciples and go from there. And I think in America, we have it backwards. We kind of have uh, this build it and they will come ecclesiology. So we believe if we build a really awesome church, if it has a great children's ministry and a great youth ministry and a great women's ministry, that people will just show up. But that's not always the case. Sure, it works sometimes, but you're not guaranteed to get disciples when you plant a church. But if you invest in intentional one-on-one discipleship, you will always end up with a church. And this is how Go has done it. In fact, they don't officially count a church as planted until the pastor of that church has already picked someone to mentor who he will eventually send out to start the next church. So they don't even count a church as official until they've already started this disciple-making process. And on that video we watched at the beginning of the service, you might have heard our team um, talking about building a foundation and building a home um, in the community there. Well, this home was for a man named Red Eye. Uh, Red Eye is in the picture above. He is the guy in the very front, and that's his daughter um, in his hands. Red Eye 
is an incredible baseball player. In fact, he is the best like adult baseball player in that entire community. So when they have their monthly tournaments, every single team wants Red Eye on their roster because Red Eye can play all nine positions and he is the best pitcher in the entire region. So Pastor Elvis, the guy that we have been working with, has identified Red Eye as a person of peace in that neighborhood. That means that Red Eye is someone who he has decided to mentor and disciple so that Red Eye can start his own church. And when we, when we were there in the DR, we were building the foundation for that church that would be built, which was a really, really cool event. Um, but the coolest part of the entire process was not building, it wasn't the wheelbarrows. My favorite part of the entire week was seeing Pastor Elvis pour in to Red Eye. On the very last day of our trip, um, Pastor Elvis started praying over Red Eye one day. He started prophesying over Red Eye, and he started talking about how God would use Red Eye to transform this community, to be a beacon of light, to show others the name of Jesus. And you could see tears welling up in Red Eye's eyes as Elvis was speaking this over him. We were seeing discipleship in real time. We were seeing Elvis pour into red eye so red eye could pour into the next generation. That is how we make disciples. One guy or girl at a time. It's a slow grind. It's not easy. It means identifying people who are faithful, available, and teachable, and investing real time into them. There is no shortcut to discipleship. It is simply sharing what's already been shared with you. So we've talked about what a disciple is, how we make disciples, and finally, what does a disciple-making movement look like? I asked one of our friends uh, named Randy this very question, and Randy pointed to a parable found in Matthew 13 to describe disciple-making movements. It's Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 to 32. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds can come and perch on its branches. My favorite tree has always been an oak tree. Like, I love trees. I always point them out. And my wife makes fun of me because every time I see an oak tree, I go, wow, that is a beautiful tree. So whenever I heard this parable growing up and I imagined this small, tiny mustard seed growing into a big, beautiful tree, I always imagined like an oak tree in a beautiful mountainous field with water around it, something like this. Like this is the tree I imagined Jesus was talking about. But the truth is, this is not what a mustard tree looks like, at least not a mustard tree in the Holy Land. When you look up a mustard tree in Israel, they look a lot more like a bush, like something like this. Like, that's not that good looking of a tree. Like, ah, is that really what disciple making movements look like? I mean, to me, it kind of looks like a weed. Like I have stuff like that in my backyard all the time that I mow over. Like, how is that what a disciple making movement is supposed to to look like? Well, I think what Jesus is trying to say is that the kingdom of God is like a mustard tree in the sense 
of that it seems insignificant at first. It's small. It takes time to grow. But when it finally does take root, it takes over. It consumes everything around it. And at times it can be wild. It can be unexpected, but it is unstoppable. And when there is a disciple-making movement led by Jesus, that's what it is. It's unstoppable. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Disciple-making movements aren't pretty. They aren't always super programmed. They aren't always perfectly planned. Instead, I find that they're raw. They're vulnerable. They're hard work. But when you put in that work, you transform the communities you are a part of. And at the story, we're in the process of planning our own disciple-making movements because we believe that if we want to reach the entire city of Houston, then we have to start with the people who are right in front of us. You don't start with the masses. You don't start with sidewalk preaching. You start by pouring into the people that God has placed right in front of you. Is that your husband? Is that your wife? Is that your kids? Is that your coworker? Is that the guy who lives next door to you? I don't know who that is, but I know that God has placed you in specific communities for a specific purpose. God has called you to go out and make disciples of all nations, and that starts right where you're at. You don't have to go to the Dominican Republic to make disciples. You can do it on your own street. What is stopping you? Why are you refusing to surrender it all to Christ? And if you are still unsure about Jesus this morning, this might all sound like a lot. <laughs> like I might've put a lot on your plate. And to be honest, it kind of is a lot. And that's a good thing. Disciples of Jesus are all in and it's always gonna be good. Is it gonna be safe? No. Is it gonna be easy? No, but it's going to be good. And I promise you, surrendering your entire life to Jesus is actually the most freeing thing you can ever do. Because by surrendering your entire life to a good and perfect God, you never have to worry about your identity or your purpose ever again. Because your identity is a disciple of Christ and your purpose is to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Jesus has made the call. We need your help. Can you help us in making disciples? Would you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this challenging but good text, God. We thank you for this high call to be a disciple and to make disciples. I pray, Lord, that each of us is think about the communities you've placed us in, the people you've surrounded us with, and you allow us just to think of that one person or that one family who we need to disciple. God, there's no secret sauce. There's no special skills we need. All you ask us to do is surrender to follow wherever your Holy Spirit leads, God. So I pray today that we would be people who surrender our entire lives to you and go out and make disciples of all nations. In Jesus' holy and perfect name, amen.